Ever since Easter, we as a congregation have been focusing on prayer, doing so under that understanding that the catechism gives us that prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness that God requires of us. And we've been working in the morning through our uh, catechism's understanding of the Lord's Prayer, and that's going to come to a conclusion this morning. I'm going to focus on the first question and answer, I'm sorry, today, uh, I'm going to focus on the first question and answer of Lord's Day 52 this morning, and then the evening we'll cover the last two question and answers uh, together in that service. But as we get to the sixth request, we're going to look at the catechism's understanding of it. It's on the screen behind me. I will ask the question and once again invite you to join with me as we answer it together aloud. The question simply asks, what does the sixth request mean? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one means by ourselves we are too weak to hold our own even for a moment, and our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not go down to defeat in the spiritual struggle but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. The scripture text that gives us this very similar encouragement is from Ephesians chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 10 through 20. From Ephesians chapter 6, we are encouraged, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not struggle against, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I thought I would start this morning by giving a little bit of a historical uh, study. I don't know if many of you are familiar with the Battle of Little Bighorn, but it's known maybe more famously as Custer's Last Stand. And I wanted to tell you the story of that battle a little bit. The year was 1876. 
And the new nation, not so new anymore, the hundred-year-old nation of the United States was growing rapidly, and much of that expansion was moving further and further west. But in the eyes of the United States expanding settlers, the issue was that as they expanded west, they came into more and more contact with the Native Americans. Those that had wanted to continue to live on and use and hunt the lands that these settlers were now taking over, and obviously that was met with some resistance. The solution to this by, from the United States perspective was to try to go after and round up and push all of these Native Americans to reservations where they could be isolated and kept apart from the expanding settlers. And again, obviously, the Native Americans didn't like that. Well, one of the troops that was sent out to try to find and move these Native Americans was Lieutenant Colonel George Custer. He was a famous Civil War uh, commander fighting in many uh, famous battles, and he was even a potential presidential candidate at the soon-to-be upcoming Democratic Convention of 1876. Well, on June 25, uh, Custer, with his accompanying uh, command, were in the south-central region of what is now Montana. And their scouts came back with the report that they had finally discovered the settlement that they had been searching after and were trying to pursue. And as the commander of these troops, Custer suddenly had to make a choice. Do I go and pursue this settlement and attack them and try to round them up and move them? Or do I wait until the backup troops that were coming behind and further reinforcements would arrive? And in trying to make that decision, here is what we think Custer knew. And I say think because, as will become evident, no one had the opportunity to ask him after the fact. But what he thought he knew was that the settlement probably had about 800 warriors, Native American warriors to it. He had 250 troops along with him, and so he knew he was outnumbered, but he assumed a superior training of his troops and the superior weaponry of his troops, thinking that this disproportion would easily be overcome. Furthermore, he assumed that, uh, that there would be an opportunity to get them by surprise. So while they were gathering there, they recognized that some warrior scouts had been spotted in the distance, thinking they had given away his position. And should they go and tell this village that the American troops were around the bend, then their element of surprise would be lost. And what is more, they would have to start completely over because the settlement would disperse and then they would have to do more work to round them up. But here is what we now, again, also assume that Custer didn't know or failed to recognize. Where he thought there were 800 warriors, he did not realize that there were more likely 2,000 trained warriors. That Sitting Bull had gathered together some allies from off of the reservation. And so that disproportion in leaders or in numbers was substantially higher. The whole settlement was about 7,000 Native Americans, probably the biggest one that these soldiers had ever seen. 
And furthermore, while their weaponry was a little bit more advanced in distance and accuracy, they were actually outgunned by those warriors who had more rapidly firing weapons that in closer range were far more deadly. Well, they also didn't realize that those scouts that had seen them weren't headed to the village, that they were going the opposite direction, so the element of surprise would have remained. And he also wasn't honest about the fact that his troops were tired and underfed. They had traveled 30 miles the day before, and they were likely exhausted. And yet, nevertheless, assuming that they were better prepared, that they were going to win, he decided to go forward with this battle. And here I quote from an article. He and his troops rode on mounting a frontal attack in broad daylights against 2,000 infuriated Lakota, Sioux, and Northern Cheyenne warriors. Their reaction has been likened to what might happen if you jab a stick into an anthill and stir hard. It was the biggest battlefield blunder Custer ever made, and of course, the last. That quote was from an article from Military History Magazine entitled, The Worst Battlefield Blunders, Five Battles That Ended Badly. And this battle did end badly. The legend that spread was that these American troops fought valiantly, wasting their bullets to the very end and dying a brave death. More likely, with more modern eyes, it seems like it was a leaderless and confused route with a battle likely only lasting a few moments. And the reason why we don't really know exactly what took place is because not one U.S. soldier survived. All of their bodies were discovered later, many of them mutilated, including Custer's own. Now, why do I tell you all of this? Our students are like, I thought school was over. We're on summer break. I'm not supposed to be learning anything. I tell you this because of the name of that article, Battlefield Blunders. This indeed was a great example of a battlefield blunder, a classic example of someone overestimating their own strength, underestimating the strength of their enemy, and therefore making a poor decision that had devastating consequences. When we get to this, the sixth request of the Lord's Prayer, and we ask to not be led into temptation, but delivered from the evil one. And we think about temptations and read scriptures about it. Both the Catechism and our biblical text from Ephesians 6 use battle language. They describe this fight of temptation as flaming arrows coming our way that we need to defend ourselves against with battle warrior armor that we need to fight against our enemy and the imagery is all warfare. Whenever we are tempted, tempted to disobey our God and do our own thing, we are in a battle. We are in a battle for our testimonies of faith. We are in a battle for the glory and the name of our God. We are in a battle for our very lives and for our souls. 
and the consequences of failing in that battle are devastating. That is why we ask, lead us not into temptation. But I often wonder if we really recognize that. I wonder if, like Custer, we undermine the seriousness of the battles that we face and we figure that it's really not all that big of a deal. I'll come back to that point later because it is a fundamental and maybe the most important point I, hate, I hope to make this morning. But let's dig into the actual context or content of this, starting with acknowledging a difficult issue. We are encouraged by Jesus and the prayer that he taught us to pray and to his disciples to say the words, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And just by saying that word, logically, it presupposes that God might lead us into temptation. But then that leads us with a difficulty. Isn't temptation what the devil does? And isn't sin disobeying God? God doesn't want us to disobey him, so why would we pray this? Or furthermore, if we know our Bibles, we know James 1.13 that says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So if that is true, why do we pray, lead us, God, not into temptation? And to give a, a quick answer to that, to, to be brief, no, God does not tempt us. God never wants you to disobey him or his will. However, there are times when does, God does allow his children to be tested. And that very same word of being tempted in James 1.13 is also translated in, in James 1 earlier as trials or, or testing. And so the idea of temptation back then was broader than just being pulled toward doing the wrong thing. It included as well the ideas of your faith being tested by trials that came along, something that God does allow from time to time. But here again, I think that the analogy of war is a good one. Wars are obviously horrible things. And therefore, wars should be and usually are avoided at all costs. It is only the fool or maybe the psychopath that wants war. And so a big part of this prayer is asking God to keep that battle far from us, to protect us from the fight. But there are also times when war is necessary when there are no other options. And so when war does come, when the battle has to be fought, we better be prepared and we better be fully informed about what that battle and what that war will look like. And so it is with temptation. Only a fool would wander into and intentionally allow themselves to be tempted because the failures that it bring, again, can be devastating but when temptation does come, then we better be prepared, we better be fully informed and ready to face those battles when they arrive. And I think that's what the catechism really does an excellent job in its answer is preparing us to face that battle. 
Again, with the help from the illustration from Custer's last stand and his failures, we learn that one of the most important lessons that we need to know is to be honest about who we are. Knowing where you are weak and vulnerable and knowing what power and strength you have. And that's where the catechism starts, with the confession. By ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own, even for a moment. Uh, might sound a bit dramatic, but it's an honest assessment. We might think that we can handle temptation and that we are strong, but we have to start with the acknowledgement that we are weak. We have no hope in this battle if we try to face it in our own strength. And the reason for that is the next statement. It's not only important to know yourselves, but to be aware of your enemy. And the catechism identifies three enemies. The devil, the world, and our own flesh. The devil is the one that we probably most easily identify. We are told in Ephesians 6, 12, that our attack, the one attacking us is the devil, and that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in this heavenly places. And if you think that language is too dramatic, we also have to keep in mind what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, when he says, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. The devil is real. The devil has as his main goal to destroy all that God has made good, and he would like nothing greater than to have you fail. To have you fail in your testimony in this world. For you to become a reason why nobody would even consider the Christian faith. Because look what it does. And look what it turns you into. To have you fail in your life. To allow yourself to be consumed by and distracted by things that have no meaningful benefit. To destroy your body and your mind with different substances. And to ruin your life as a result. And if the devil convinces you that well, he's not all that powerful or all that strong, that he's not that bad of a threat, that he is the one that wants to really bring you freedom and that God's rules are too strict and too hard and, and that you have to be able to let yourself loose every once in a while, then he's already won a great deal of the battle by diminishing his own power in your mind. But don't miss that the devil doesn't work alone. The world tempts us. The devil has won so much of our culture on his side. And again, as in the advertisements that we watch, in the things that we see in society and what is promoted and what is highlighted, the message that is communicated over and over again is that the church is boring and for stiffs and for old fogies who can't get up to modern times and just think like backwood hicks. To be really free, to really enjoy life, to find celebration in all the good things, that is where you go to the world and on his side. And in recognizing that, what we also have to recognize is that our real tempter may not be 
a red figure with horns and a tail. But instead, our tempter might be our neighbor, our co-worker, our best friend who says, come on, why are you being such a stiff? Our sibling. This is where temptation can be drawn from and where we are pulled toward the wrong thing. And the reason why we're pulled is another enemy, which is admittedly our own flesh. In truth, I think the devil gets far too much credit for the temptations that come our way and the eventual sins that we often give into. He doesn't need to help us all that much because if we're honest, we confess we want to sin. We like sin. We pursue it from the moment we are born and we are prone to giving into it at all times. It never goes away. We are weak. Our enemies are numerous and their temptations are constant. So is there any hope? Well, this is why we pray. The catechism ends with these words, And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we may not go down to defeat in the spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. And that's also where Ephesians 6 begins in verse 10 by saying, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then it ends in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. If we are so weak, which we are, and if our enemies are so numerous and constant, we have to look beyond ourselves. And we look to the strength of God as found in the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit, the spirit that reveals God's word, the spirit that reminds us of the important fight that we are engaging in and what it's all about, the spirit that encourages us and convicts us when we fail. We need to lean on the holy God for the help and strength that we face, in, we need to face and fight this battle. And we need to lean on one another. Again, we have to point out that this is one of those us, our prayers. We do not pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. We pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. One of the great blessings of community, one of the wonderful things that took place this morning with little Agnes Jones is the idea that she is now a part of us. For all who have come to the baptismal font, they have received that promise that we together are going to pray for one another. And that's not just for physical needs when we get injured or ill, but it's more importantly for our spiritual health. What a blessing is the church of Christ where it's not just a personal struggle, but it is a collective struggle. We set for each other good examples showing that it is possible to not give in to every temptation that comes our way. We hold each other accountable that when we do fall, we call each other out and we encourage each other to fight once again. We support one another in our struggle and our challenge and challenge each other to stand firm. 
But all of that only matters if we care and as if we want to win the battle against temptation. And that's where I have to go again to that question I asked from the beginning. Do we care? Do we really realize what is at stake here? And are we engaging in the battle? I fear that like Custer, too many of us overestimate our own strength. We underestimate our enemies and we minimize the consequences of what is at stake. And as a result, we continually put ourselves in places and situations where we will be vulnerable, where we will be tempted, and where we will eventually sin. As one commentator rightly pointed out, it is insincere to pray this request and then to go and flirt with the devil. But we still do it all the time. Last week, I said that God in Christ has forgiven our debts. That he has, in his grace, freed us from the obligations that we owe to him. And unfortunately, what people too often hear in that is, well, that must mean that sins are not that big of a deal. But they are. We say, for example... It was just a little lie. But then we look around. And how many businesses, how many important relationships have been destroyed by just a little lie? We say, for example, everyone gets drunk every once in a while. But then we look around. And how many times have members of this congregation been extremely close to losing their very lives because it's okay to get drunk every once in a while? Again, this whole series has been preached in the light of Easter. And Jesus did come to set us free from our sins. And the part of that statement that we often celebrate and focus on is the fact that we have been set free from the ultimate consequence of our sins, which is hell. But the part that I think we need to continue to hear when we say that Jesus has set us free from sin is that he has set us free from the power of sin over your life. And that the resurrected Jesus who sent his Holy Spirit into this world tells you, you can win the victory. You are no longer enslaved by sin. You have the power to stand firm and to say no. So don't make the blunder of other fools from the past and put yourself in a vulnerable spot where you make a foolish and sinful choice in a moment that will end up destroying so much of your life. Stand firm. Take this battle seriously. Know that you are weak and that your enemies are always there and those enemies want to destroy you. And so pray. Lean on the strength of God and the support of this community so that victory by victory your strength grows and you pass the test and stand firm against the temptations that come your way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, we pray.
Amen. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we sit before you as those that have to confess that we have taken too lightly your command. That because of the prompting of the devil, we have turned your loving guidance of your word into a constraining and burdensome regulation. Lord, may we see the life given in your word. May we recognize the schemes of the devil that fights against us and wants to destroy us. May we know what is at stake. And then give us the strength through the Holy Spirit to recognize temptation when it comes and to stand firm against it. And when we fail, we pray that your Holy Spirit would also convict us, call us to repentance and confession, so that our lives might be lived in light of your holy commands. All this we pray in the only way we can, in the strength and the power that is given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ, in his name, amen.